Chapter 13 of The Great Diamond Syndicate This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nancy Cochran Gergen, Gilbert, Arizona. The Great Diamond Syndicate by Nicholas Carter. Chapter 13 Into the Trap No, said the detective presently. I think I'd better go myself, though it may be a trap. Hold these people here while I slip down to the phone. During the absence of the detective, the red-headed young man moved swiftly about the room. To Maynard, he seemed to be looking for something. He hung constantly in the vicinity of the chair, upon which the murderer's clothing had been placed after the exchange of garments. Once or twice he got down on the floor and examined the carpet. Maynard thought this remarkable, but said nothing. When Nick returned from the phone booth, and the young man was still busy in his search of the room, Maynard explained his actions to the detective, who smiled and said not a word in reply. "'Well, I've got to get a move on,' said the young fellow, in a moment. "'Are you chaps coming with me?' "'We must wait for the coroner,' replied Nick. And so they waited, while the young man fumed up and down. Nick turned to the clerk again, motioning him into the hall, where he followed. When Townsend entered the office, he asked, how did you know that he was the one this Martin Haynes had asked for? Oh, Haynes gave me a description and a name. This set Nick to thinking on new lines for a moment. Then he said, While we are waiting for the coroner, we may as well go to the office and inspect the signature. Leaving Maynard and the reporter in the room, Nick and the clerk descended to the office. The signature, when inspected through a powerful glass, proved to be a very ordinary one, but Nick made certain that it was written by a woman. "'How did that reporter get in here?' asked Nick. "'I suspect that the elevator boy gave him a tip,' was the reply. Nick called the boy, who looked confused, and neither admitted nor denied the accusation. Presently a deputy coroner arrived, and Nick accompanied him to room 43. While the reporter was asking him impossible questions, Nick took the clothing left by the murderer to the office, and left it with a clerk, carefully wrapped. Give that to no one, he said. I will call for the package in person. Then the reporter and Maynard came down the elevator, and the former started off. I'm going, he said. Come along. Shall I come? whispered Maynard. It is a trap, said Nick, and you may as well go home so as to be fit tomorrow. Why do you say it is a trap? Because that chap is not a reporter. How do I know? If he was a reporter, he would have telephoned in something for the first edition the minute he saw the body, without waiting for anything more. Besides, what has he learned about the dead man or the circumstances of the murder? But if it is a trap, why do you go? Because, if it is a trap, it is set by the murderer or some of her confederates, and going with this young man will place me in touch with the gang. But it is dangerous. All my work is dangerous. Why don't you take officers with you? I shall not be alone, replied Nick significantly, and turned away with the red-headed young fellow. As the detective and his young companion passed out at the square of light in front of the hotel, Maynard, standing irresolute at the window, saw two men who had been hidden in a stairway across Broadway leave their shelter and follow them. Alarmed at the occurrence, Maynard stepped out into the street, 
and passed on in the direction taken by the detective, the reporter, and their pursuers. He saw them turn east, and then they were lost to his sights. With a heavy heart, the young millionaire returned to the hotel. Policemen were standing guard out in the hall. There was a door connecting room 43 with 44. Maynard secured the latter room and threw himself on the bed. He lay for a long time listening to the talk of the officers, but finally fell into an uneasy slumber. When he woke again, there was a bright light in 43. His door was a trifle ajar, and he could hear voices in the room where the dead man lay. He arose and stepped toward the door. Then a voice that he knew came to his ears. It was the voice of a woman. "'I think we've settled Nicholas for good and all,' she said. "'That was a clever thought.' Maynard started back in terror. "'What was that woman doing there, in the room with his murdered chum? "'Why should she desire to see the detective come to harm?' Maynard actually pinched himself to see if he was not dreaming. But what he heard was a reality, fast enough. Had this woman, whose voice he heard, taken any part in the murder? While the young man puzzled over the matter, another voice reached his ears. "'Yes, Nick will trouble us no more,' it said. He went up against the wrong bunch this time. This voice was as familiar to Maynard as the other, only it was a man's voice. He could not figure it out. Why should these people be here, and why was the room open at all? Had Nick Carter come to harm? With this thought prominent in his mind, Maynard moved toward the doorway. In the half-light of the room he stumbled over a rocker and fell heavily to the floor. Before he could get on his feet again he heard quick steps rushing into the room, saw a blaze of light from the doorway, saw, also, two faces that he knew, rage and apprehension showing upon them. Then he called out, saw an uplifted arm, heard a wrathful voice, and a blow descended. When the officers came to 43 in the early morning, they found the door to 44 open. Entering, they found Maynard lying on the floor with a frightful wound in his head and a stab in the region of the heart. Room 43 gave many evidences of having been searched thoroughly. Even the carpet had been loosened in places. The body of Townsend, however, had been in no wise disturbed. Maynard was conveyed to his hotel, and the dead man taken to the residence of his parents. If Maynard lives, the doctor said, it will be a wonder. He was left for dead. The clue to the murderer which he had stumbled on was of no avail at that time, for what he knew might never aid in the detection of the criminals. The wound on the head, the doctor said, was liable to produce a lapse of memory which would go further back than the night on which it was received. In the meantime, Nick Carter was satisfied that Maynard had gone to his rooms from the hotel, and would remain there until the next day. As he walked down the street with the self-styled reporter, the detective listened between steps for a sound he hoped to hear not far away. No such sound came to his ears. Presently he found himself in Houston Street. The house occupied by the African fortune-teller, with whom Maynard and Townsend had made an appointment, was not far away. Nick knew the place well, for, as much out of curiosity as anything, he had called upon the woman when she had first attracted the attention of the town, and had made a close scrutiny of her apartments, which were on the first floor of an old residence not far from the East River. There was a red light over the door, 
but the building seemed still, and the window shades were closely drawn. The young man stopped directly in front of the house. "'This is the place,' he said. Again Nick listened for the expected footfalls, but in vain. There was nothing for it but to go in alone and trust to luck. He had summoned Chick and Patsy from his home when he had called the coroner, instructing them to hasten to the hotel and trail him wherever he went. Something had possibly happened to disarrange the plan. End of chapter 13 Recording by Nancy Cochran Gargan, Gilbert, Arizona